If you have a Bible this morning and you'll read along in our scripture reading, I'd encourage you to do so. We're going to take a reading from a portion of the book of 1 Samuel, book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to read 13 verses in chapter 17. Chapter 17, book of 1 Samuel, and we'll begin our reading in verse 38, and we'll read down to verse 50 of our scripture reading. And you pray for me this morning that the Lord would speak to your heart uh, what he has placed in mind today. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll begin our reading in verse 38. It says this, And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also, he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off of him. And he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with the sword and with the spear and with the shield. But I... Come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcass of thy host, excuse me, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slung it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. That'll conclude our reading this morning, and forgive any of the mistakes that we might have made. I would like to call your attention to the last part of verse 46, as that's where our thought is going to be derived from today. So many things that we could talk about in this scripture reading, and so many lessons that we learn from this chapter, but... Uh, my heart has been drawn to the last part of verse 46 where it says this. That, or so that, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
The title of our message this morning is Self-Interest, Pragmatism, and Serving God. Self-Interest, Pragmatism, and Serving God. Now, as I'll say sometimes, don't, don't let a $10 word lose you, all right? Um, sometimes people hear something like that and they, they check out. Um, but this morning, as I was, uh, this week, as I was preparing my thoughts and I was reading down through this scripture reading, had a lot of time the last two weeks just to kind of uh, have thought and not a lot of responsibility, um, which is, I guess, twofold. It can be a good thing and, and also not so much sometimes. But um, my mind began to be drawn to our motivations. Less about our deeds and more about our motivations. What compels us to do? Now, the Bible puts an emphasis on this when it begins to talk about the condition of our heart. When it says that God, and it said in the chapter before this, that God is not someone who sees the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart and that God's primary concern about you and I is not the things we're actually doing necessarily in as much as why we're doing those things. What is compelling us to act? Now, I want to say this this morning, and, and I hope that you'll take it into your consideration, that you can do the right thing with the wrong motivation, and it become the wrong thing. We can do religious things. The Bible teaches us that if we lack something in the book of James that we're to ask, but then it also says that very often we don't receive because why? Because we ask amiss that we might consume those things upon our lust. So a person says the Bible commands me to pray and it says that God will answer me. And so I get down and I pray and I ask God to help me and then he doesn't answer me. But the Bible says that the reason why God is not quick to give you an answer perhaps is because the intention of our heart can be set upon something else other than the good, the inherent value of what we're asking for. This morning what we want to talk about is in serving the Lord, what is our motivation? And I'll say this, I don't think that it is as readily notable by us or noticeable by us as we think. Or in other words, very often we can have our hearts and our lives set on doing something and not recognize that in the process of doing something over a period of time that our intention has evolved into something that it did not initially begin to be. Now here we read the story of David and Goliath. And you might ask, where did you get this thought from the story of David and Goliath. Well, what we find earlier in this story is obviously that the, the great Philistine Goliath comes out and he's tempting the armies of the living God. And for 40 days, he is defying and he's cursing them and he's cursing their God. And so all of these men are sitting back and they're afraid. And after they're afraid, the Bible teaches us in verse 25 of our scripture reading that Saul begins to make an offer to the people. He's trying to entice people to go out and fight this great giant. And so he tells them, if you'll go out and you'll fight, your family will be exempt from all services and taxes. 
You'll be made a wealthy man and you'll be brought into the royal family through my daughter. And so what we find is that Saul, like is often the case in most things in life, he begins to entice a form of obedience by setting out there certain natural benefits that you could gain by going and defeating the giant. And I say that this morning because very often if you listen to the language that happens within church or within religious circles, unintentionally it becomes one that we begin to entice people to serve the God of really self-interest. Or in other words, it's this. You don't want to go to hell. So since you don't want to go to hell, seek after God. Or there's a great purpose that the Christian Bible offers to people who become Christians. And certainly, I can testify to that, that the Bible teaches us that if we will yield our lives in the service of Christ, that you will find great benefits naturally to you. If you simply obey the teachings of the Scriptures, what you'll find is that it will be very advantageous to your self-interest. The Bible gives much instructions. Over the last week, I've been reading through the book of Proverbs, and as I've been reading, I can't help but note so many of the good business practices, so many of the good personal finance uh, wisdom, uh, gems of wisdom that it puts forward. It talks about child-rearing and certain ways that you can rear your children in a godly fashion. And if you begin to employ all of these practical teachings of the Bible, what you will learn from from practicing Christianity is that it is very advantageous to your life. It can develop a very good life for a person if they don't even believe in the resurrection of Christ, they don't surrender their life to Christ, but they merely for practical benefits decide to employ the things of the Bible, you'll find good come to you. And so very often, young person, as people are, are trying to convince you as you stand at the, 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 uh, the, the place where you're about to make a lot of decisions in life, I think of Jackson going off to college, and he's standing right at the end of one chapter in life, and it seems like there's this endless strand of options and opportunities before him, and certainly there are a lot of people that are peddling a lot of things, and they're saying, hey, if you'll come this route, look at all the benefits that you can receive from taking this route, and, and so employers and and different uh, friends and different girlfriends and all these different things can offer all of these different things in life. And if we're not careful, we as the church of the living God can get tempted to using the same tactic that the world does. And that is, look at how good of a life that you can live if you'll come and serve the Lord at this church. Look at the good life you can live if you employ the things of the Bible. Look how beneficial it will be to your life. You see, the God of self-interest is one that has overtaken our culture and our nation in a way that is probably unparalleled in history. Everybody is selling something. Everybody has a reason to entice you that will be good for you. And in the end, you're the God. You're the one who is being served. Here, Saul is trying to entice these people, these men, to go out and risk their life. And he's saying, if you do so, your life will be so blessed. This morning, if, if your motivation in serving the Lord is that it presents to you a good life, you have the wrong motivation. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I'm glad that when we seek God and we find him, that God does bless us and, and save us from hell. I'm glad that the Bible says that he establishes our goings and that he puts our feet upon a solid rock, that all of those are benefits that we not, need not ignore, that we need not say the Bible doesn't teach because it does. But that might, must not be our utmost motivation is how things will benefit us. That is the shallow Christianity today that people are absolutely sick of and they ought to be. There is no room in our our beliefs, there's no room in our church for serving God for self-interest. You know, a lot of people, it's been narrowed down to, you know, if you come to church and people think that God is this, works the way that we do, that if, if you come to church a couple of times in a row and you maybe give a little extra in the offering, that God will then bless you a little bit. And so if they feel bad about themselves, if they feel like they've been a little unrighteous lately, if they haven't been as attentive to God and his word, what oftentimes our psyche can create in our mind is, well, now I need to make it up to God because I want to make sure he doesn't punish me or wrap me on the head for doing something wrong. And so maybe we spend a little extra time in the Bible or maybe we try to witness to somebody. We're a little more attentive or we show up at a Wednesday night service. And in our minds, oftentimes we don't realize that in our subconscious, it is is this way of saying, God, I'll give you what you want so that ultimately I can give me, give, you, you'll give me what I want. This morning, God can see past all of that. God does not call us to, God is not desperate for our service. You recognize that? If one person was here this morning or if the whole house was full, that does not make God any more complete either way. God recognizes that what is in our best interest and what does is most advantageous is that we do come and that we do worship him, but it is not a need of his for us. Here, Saul tried to convince them to come and serve for a self-interested reason. This morning, I want to advocate to you that there is a higher reason to serve God than your own self-interest. And let me say this, if you do it for your own self-interest, you will find religion to be empty. I have found that before, have you? Where you did not recognize that that's why you were doing something, and then when it all comes out in the wash some way, you recognize that your motivation wasn't as pure as what you wish it would have been, and you get to the end of what you've been striving for, and you recognize Man, that was all about me. That wasn't about the inherent good. That wasn't about the Lord. That wasn't about other people. In the end, it was about me. And so what, how has it left me? It leaves me empty of the very thing that I was striving after. I was looking for the self-fulfillment. I was looking for the satisfaction. And now that I sought it, it's nowhere to be found. Self-interest is not a reason why that you serve the Lord. God is not going to bless people because they say, you know what? You've checked these things off the checkbox. Now let me bless you because of that. Here's another reason, pragmatism. Big $10 word, but it means something very simple. Pragmatism is kind of the, the idea of the day, in my opinion, and that, that is this. If it's successful, it must be good. If it works, it must be good. Right? So, what we would say in a setting like this is, things must be going well if we have a lot of people here. 
We're doing something right. We got the right preacher if people are showing up again. Or he's doing something right. Or there's a lot of young people that are wanting to come into the house of God and they're, they're excited about things going on. And so this youth group thing that we've started or this kids choir that we started, it must be right because it has translated into success. And so people don't necessarily, they're able to step away from serving the God of self-interest. And now they are serving definitively a cause. But that cause is rooted still in self-interest, in success. And so we find here in the 29th verse of our scripture in the book of 1 Samuel 17 that as he's looking around and, and David gets to the, the front lines and he sees what the Philistines are saying and he, he realizes that they're taunting the ways of God, he looks around and he says, is there not a cause? Is there not something worth fighting for? And so oftentimes what you'll see in church is that people can rise above the, the, the personal self-interest and the things they have at stake and they can say, you know what? I want to serve God for something something bigger than self. I don't just want to do it for self. I want to do it for something bigger. I want there to be a cause. And so I'm going to go do it for lost souls. And I'm going to go do it for, for the, the welfare of my church and to love other people. And all of those things in their proper place are noble and they're good. However, what is dangerous about making a cause, the end objective is that that cause begins to be the focus and it, it deprives the meaning and the heart of why we're here. It's not about being successful. It's about being faithful. And people forget that about the Christian life. Because everything is looked at. I've said before behind this pulpit, whenever I first accepted the call to this church, the first question that people want to know is, how many people go there? How many youth are there? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry that it's such a small church, but maybe you can grow it. Those are the first things that people are spewing out of their mouth about church. Here. In our scripture reading, we read that Saul wanted to take the way of pragmatism. He had a good cause, and that was to fight this battle and to defeat the Philistine. But the means that he used was not the means that God wanted to use. And so what did he do? He took David aside. He said, you know, in the history of warfare, this is what always works. You dress somebody up in all, these, all this armor, you give them all this heavy equipment and you send them out to fight. And that's how you win a war. And so he was trying to be pragmatic about it, but David puts all this stuff on and he just starts to move. If you read it in the original, it just says he just starts to move. He's just trying to take steps and he's so uncomfortable and he knows this isn't going to work. What's it not going to work to do is the question. Because the real question that we have to ask in the story of David and Goliath is this. What was God's intention in sending David out to fight Goliath? I'll contend this morning, it was not to win a battle. That is not what God's end objective was. The winning the battle was a means to a greater end. You see, what God wanted to do 
is he wanted to display his name and show himself to be the greatest God among all the gods of the earth. He wanted people to know that this little puny nation of Israel, whom according to all the nations in the world was nothing, that that little group of people, that they are the ones that serve the true and the living God who had power beyond the imagination of all the gods that the other nations served. And so what God wanted to do was exalt his name, that all people, as the book of Malachi, that all nations might bow down and call his name great among the nations. That's what God wanted to do. And all he was doing was using this battle of David and Goliath to exalt his name above people. Do you recognize today that the purpose of life and all that exists is that God's name might be known as great among all the peoples of the earth? That's why we're here. That's why this church is here. That's why we seek for people to be saved. That's why the Great Commission ought to be something very personal to us that we seek to execute and carry out to the best of our abilities. Because in the end, it's not just about people being saved. It's not just about people being baptized. It's not just about people getting their life in church and getting things cleaned up that you might be proud of them, that I might feel good about them. But the reason for all of this is that in our lives, God might be seen among the nations of the world as who he really is. People have lost sight. You know, religion religion obfuscates and, and it, it camouflages. It sets in the midst all these sub-purposes, all these things that are meant to get us to the purpose. It sets those things up as the objective. And so we think in our minds, getting people saved is the end objective. No, it's not. What's important? It's something we ought to strive to do and we ought to be diligent about doing. But seeing people saved is a means to seeing God's name glorified. Here, Saul, he went the path of being pragmatic. Churches can do that. What will get us our biggest crowd on Wednesday night, on Sunday mornings? What will get the most people here? You know, there's a, a famous... A uh, fr- French mathematician of the 1600s that named Blaise Pascal, and he, he did this, uh, it's called uh, Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager is this uh, cost-benefit analysis that basically he set out that's really famous today that people still use that says this, if, if you believe in God and you're wrong, you've lost nothing. But you've gained everything. But... If you don't believe in God and you're wrong, you've lost everything. You know, people have tried to use that as an evangelistic tool, and I don't like it at all. There's a lot of, I'm not going to get into the depth of why I think it's not a very good line of reasoning, but in the end, here's what it's doing. It's saying, believe in God for yourself. Do things for yourself. That leads to the question, you know, whenever, I think I grew up in a time when churches have been so desperate for people that they begin to cut, to cut corners, especially with young people, to entice young people to come. But let me be very clear about the teachings of the scriptures, because I think it's worth noting. God does not want people to follow him for themselves or for anything other than 
their absolute adoration of who he is. God does not want people just because he needs more people. God wants your heart. God has always wanted your heart. That place, you know, whenever you're taking all the checklist and you've got all that checked off, all the good righteous deeds, all the religious things, all the church attendance, all of those things, you've done all those things. Whenever you get to the very end of it, that's where God begins to care. You know, I've often thought about my own children and as they grow, I certainly want them to be in the house of the Lord. I certainly want them to, uh, uh, to, to attend whenever it's their prerogative, whether they can or not. But here's what I desire far more than any of that. It's that when they're here, they're here. But when they're not here, they're still here. Does that make sense? When they're out there and they're living life and they're off in college or whenever they're working a job or when they're on a date, that their heart is still fixed on doing what is right before the eyes of God because he deserves it and because they love him, not because they fear me. Here, the God of pragmatism has to ask this question, what is our goal? What's the goal? To me, young person today, coming to church, the goal is to cultivate a love of Christ. A deep, sustaining, personal, private love of Christ that transcends anybody else. Any compulsion from an outside sense. And parents, that is the reason why we must be deep and diligent upon our knees. Because nothing that we do, we can encourage good behaviors that might lead to righteousness. We can uh, demonstrate certain truths which might pique interest. But in the end, what it takes is God's Spirit convincing the heart of a person that He is worthy of their worship not themselves. Here's the the stark reality. We do one or the other. When you come to church, recognize this. You're either doing it out of your love and devotion and adoration of Christ alone or for self. There is no in-between. It may be habit. It may be a whole number of reasons why we do it that we don't even completely recognize. But God wants a burning heart for him. <clears throat> I don't know if I've said this here before, but I've, I've said largely in jest that I've had a favorite church member before. It was my brother-in-law. I was his pastor for about a year. And uh, when he got saved, he was very deeply entrenched in the Catholic church, very deeply devoted to the Catholic church. And when he got saved... I mean, his life took a 180. More than I could express, his life took a 180. And suddenly, anytime you were around him, he just wanted to know more, not about the Bible, about the Lord. I mean, he just, he was the sponge that just always asking questions, always asking about your prayer habits and your prayer life and what God's voice sounds like and what it feels like. And he was just constantly asking questions. Anytime that he would come around, he was dating my sister at the time. And and as as a pastor, I know I should have been this way, but at times I was thinking, man, can we talk about anything else? Because he was just so eager to know more about. And what always stuck out to me was it was not like most. He was not zealous for a cause. He was zealous for a person. 
I always jokingly said he was my favorite person to pastor because he drug me closer to Christ. Paul, I'm not going to be much longer here this morning. Paul, this is, I think I can say this fairly confidently, at least at the moment, is this has always been one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible because I think it encompasses so concisely the attitude that a Christian ought to have towards worshiping God. Paul is sitting in prison. It's necessary to know when you read the book of Philippians. You've got to know he's sitting in prison. It changes the whole nature of the book. He's sitting in prison. Chains on him, rugged conditions, and his heart is burning. You know, what's interesting, in the Bible, you know, I saw athletes, I used to, I don't watch sports too much anymore, but athletes used to put, uh, what is it, Philippians 4, 9 or something like that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not the right verse, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I put it on their little football paint, and I always thought, if I'm just being really honest, you fool. That's just what I thought. I'm being honest. Here's the reason why. They're looking at this objective, this football game. And they're saying, you know, I can go out and I can have strength. God will give me strength to fight this game. And whether win or lose, a lot of them say, you know, it doesn't matter, win or lose. I just want to go out there strong and fight. But the irony of what Paul is talking about here is just profound. Because here's what he's saying. He's in prison. He's on the brink of death. His life is shining through the gospel because of his torturous experience that he's having in prison. The gospel is spreading all through the Roman guards. And everyone is hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's bound, because he's imprisoned. And Paul gets to the end of the book and he says this, I have learned that even in a situation like this, I can be content. Now, that word content, again, it has a different meaning today than it did in the original. Content is not saying, well, I'm just, I'm okay. I'm satisfied. I can tolerate my present condition. That's not contentment. Contentment, when spoken of in the Bible, is this. You're just as happy here as you are anywhere else. Or in other words, if I remain here perpetually, that's okay. I'm content here. This is where I'm good to be. So here the irony of what Paul is saying is this. He is sitting in prison. He is surrounded by guards. He is beaten. He is all number of terrible things. And Paul is saying this. I have learned that even here I can be intent because of why. He tells us in the preceding chapter. Listen to what he says. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. For what? What did he lose all things for? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Have you ever, have you ever been by yourself? And yet, you could feel the presence of God in the most real, 
and personal way. You're maybe in the, the midst of hardship, maybe in the midst of questions, maybe as life often goes, there's just all these things going on. Just noise, constant noise. And then God is just with you. And you can just feel his abiding presence with you. I think most Christians have not experienced that. That's my opinion. I mean, really, where it's not like I, I, you know, I, I just feel a little good. That's not what I'm talking about. You're at a time whenever, you know, there's been times where I've been praying before where I thought if I opened my eyes, I'd see God and die. Really. He was that real and palpable and close. It's not a figment of my imagination. It's not something I hope was there. I mean, God was there. Everything else faded into obscurity. And in that moment, when the, I think of that painting in the Sistine Chapel where the finger of God is touching the finger of man, where God's finger has just reached out and he's just barely touching you. I have no hesitation in saying you that's the apex of my existence right there. That's the height of it. It's never gotten better. Never. Not even close. Because in that moment, there is this personal knowledge about who God is. This deep awareness of his person and his presence And Paul is saying this, I would lose everything for that. You know what this church, our objective is? Everything we do, everything we do is meant to bring each one of us to that. Right there. It's meant to bring lost people right there. Where all the, all the things that run through their minds, all the fear, all those things, they just fade away. And suddenly, it's not about obtaining an objective. I need to get saved and grab it and put it in my pocket so that I have it from now on. It's about a person. It's about God himself. And it's when you come to know him. That's what Jesus said in, in John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that you come to know me. Here Paul says, not only that he would lose everything for that moment of knowledge, personal experience, but listen to what he takes further. He says this, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I might win Christ. I love this because here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I lost it all. I lost everything just so I can have that deep knowledge of Christ. But don't think I'm worrying about what I lost. As a matter of fact, in almost a sense of of levity, he's laughing at what he lost. He's saying, it's just trash. That's what the word dung means. It means rubble. It's just trash. I count it all just as trash if, by losing it, I can come to know him. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. If you're 
I say this to all of us today, but especially if you're a young Christian, don't play the church game. Don't play the religion card, the church game, the good boy act, the good girl act. Or in other words, don't allow things that are okay things, serving the Lord and being in church and being a participant, don't let all those things become the objective. In the end, all of those things lead to self-interest or pragmatism, just carrying out and fulfilling a goal for the goal's sake. You really want to do what God has created you to be here to do? Come to know Him. Come to experience Him in a personal way all by yourself. You know, that's the hard thing about the Christian life, and I'm, I'm trying to close this morning, but that's the hard thing about the Christian life is it's deeply personal. It's something when nobody else is around. That, to me, is the moment that my walk with Christ really begins. It really is a revealer. That's why Jesus put such emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount, on serving Him in private, because it is in those moments of private when nobody else is around that motivations get revealed. And if a person is able and willing to serve God with diligence and devotion when nobody is around, then perhaps the substance of their faith is genuine. But if it takes a catalyst, if it takes a carrot out in front to say, well, you ought to do this because. I believe one day that that, is going to be, that faith is going to be tried by fire and it's going to become up wanting. This morning... David, he went out. And this is the last thing I'll read is verse 46 of our scripture reading. Here's what it said. It said that the purpose why he went out, he wanted to defeat the giant for this reason, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He just wanted people to know God. I think David today would be embarrassed at how heralded that story is toward him. How he is so revered. Because that's not why he went out. Why did he go out? People could see the greatness of his God. This morning I pray that God would help us, that he would purify our motives, and that they would be about him. I often thought after a sermon like this when I was young, how could you get that excited about something like that? Like about God. And here's what I would say. When something is inherently excellent, like inherently good in and of itself, the more you know it, the more excitement it breeds. But when something is inherently good and excellent and you don't know it, then you might stand and wonder as to why people are so excited about it. That's how the Lord is. You know, for a person who's been saved or a person who hasn't been saved, but a person who's been saved and is still very young and immature in their Christian walk, and they look at all these people that get so excited about the things of the Lord, and they say, you know, I mean, I, I want to I go to church and stuff, but that just seems a little overboard. Seems a little much. <clears throat> Here's what I would say. What if I know something about the Lord that you don't? Like, what if I've experienced him in a way you haven't? 
And that I know if you experienced him in that way, you would be more zealous than what I would be. I would often say to my brother-in-law whenever he was seeking the Lord, you just got to try it. Once you try it, you'll never go back. Because God is that great. That's our message this morning. I pray that God would help us to discover our intentions and they would be devotedly seeking to serve who he is. And there would not be an undercurrent of self-interest involved in our worship of God.